My name is Keith Cowart, lead pastor of Christ Community, and each week I or one of our pastors will bring a message that we pray will stir your heart. We believe that God is the source of life and truth and that His Word is one of the primary means through which we make that vital connection with God. It's our hope that whether you're already a believer or just beginning to open your heart to God, that the truth of His Word would point you to Him. He came that you would have life and that more abundantly. We are coming toward the end of our study in the Gospel of John. We just have a few more weeks. We are at a critical transition point this morning. For the last several weeks, we have been in uh, what's called the, uh, the upper room discourse. All of the things that happened, all of the things that Jesus taught when he was together with his disciples in the upper room. But now the time has come for them to leave the upper room and to go to the place where Jesus will be arrested and ultimately taken to be crucified. I'm in chapter 18. We're actually going to cover material that goes all the way down to verse 16 of chapter 19. I'm not going to read all this, uh, but I do want you to know where it is. Keep your finger there. I'll be referring to a lot of passages. Mark it. I would encourage you to go home and read it for yourself. But here's what I want to do. I just want to kind of recount the, the flow of these events. Um, I will say to you up front that one of the things that happens in these two chapters is the telling of the story of Peter's denial. I'm going to refer to that briefly, but I'm going to leave that mainly for another message in a couple of weeks. So what I want to do is kind of just walk you through the events of this evening and the following day that constitute Jesus' arrest and, um, uh, and, and the trial that is to follow. Um, after all that was said and done in the upper room, Jesus led his disciples across the Kidron Valley onto the Mount of Olives and into a garden called Gethsemane. Now, John doesn't tell us it's Gethsemane, but we know that from the other, um, the other Gospels. Uh, John also didn't tell us about the, the famous prayer that Jesus prays when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. When we look to those passages, we understand that, that the first thing that Jesus did when he got to that, that garden on the Mount of Olives is that he began to pray an agonizing prayer in which Jesus poured out his heart to his Father. He acknowledged out of his humanity his awareness that the, the path that the Lord had put before him was a difficult, painful very hard path. He said, Lord, if there's any way to take this cup from me, then take it. But ultimately, Jesus prayed three times, actually, not my will, but thine be done. What we know for certain is that after agonizing in that time of prayer, Jesus rose up. He went back to his disciples with absolute resolution, with absolute commitment and devotion to doing the will of God. As he was there with his disciples, um, a, a great uh, cohort of Roman soldiers came to where they were. A cohort, by the way, is a specific number of people. Technically, it is 600 soldiers. Now, it could be sometimes, or your cohort could sometimes be used to describe a gathering of 200 soldiers. I don't know about you, but when I heard this story as a kid, I never thought there were 200 soldiers there. I was thinking 10 or 15 soldiers. There were also the Jewish leaders who were there, the Sanhedrin, the ruling party of the Jewish people. 
Uh, and there was Judas who was there to betray Jesus. But this is a large, large group of men that come to arrest Jesus. It's very clear from that that the Romans anticipated the possibility of a riot. So they sent 200, at least 200 soldiers to make sure that didn't happen. They come to, they come to the, the, the garden. Jesus meets them at the edge of the garden. There's, uh, a, a, there are a few words in a near scuffle. Uh, you probably in, could have anticipated that Peter was going to try something and do something that would cause problems, and he did, but Jesus deals with it, and then Jesus gives himself up to be arrested. The trial would have taken place back in Jerusalem, so they would have led Jesus off the mountain, back across the valley, and into the city of Jerusalem. By the way, that's not a long distance I mean, when you go to Israel, the place where you go to see the city is on the Mount of Olives, near the place where the Garden of Gethsemane was. It's just a half an hour's walk across the valley. So they take Jesus back into the city. And as they arrive back in the city, what you're going to see next is that there will be two stages of the trial. There is the Jewish stage and there is the Roman stage. Now, why are there two stages? It's really, you have to understand a little bit about Roman history. When the Romans conquered a new nation, it was not their desire to send lots of people in to govern that new nation. As long as that nation would guarantee and promise their, their loyalty to Rome, Rome said, you can rule yourselves. We'll have a few people in place just to make sure that happens, but you can rule yourself, but there are a few things we will not allow you to do. One of those things was that they did not have the right to execute. Only Rome could execute a man. And so the Jewish leaders, whose aim was to see Jesus crucified, knew that they could not do it on their own. So the trial begins with the Jewish leaders, but then it goes to Rome. In the Jewish portion, they take Jesus to see a man named Annas, A-N-N-A-S, Uh, It's a little bit odd that they would take him to Annas because Caiaphas was the high priest. And it's even more confusing because at one point, John seems to call Annas the high priest. So when you're reading this, you may be a little confused as to exactly what's going on. Let me explain it this way. Annas had actually been named the high priest years earlier. He was chosen by the people. He was named by the people to be high priest. But Rome had deposed him and put Caiaphas in his place. So it seems that in the hearts of the people, Annas was their true high priest. Caiaphas was Rome's puppet. So they took him first to Annas. There's no question that Annas uh, did not exercise great influence over Caiaphas. Essentially, Caiaphas always looked to Annas for what to do. So Caiaphas, I mean, Annas begins by questioning him. Uh, Annas says to him, what is it that you have done? Tell me about your t- disciples and your teaching. Jesus simply answers to him, everything I've done, I've done in the light of day. Everything I've done, I've done in public. I have taught in the synagogues. I have preached in the marketplaces. I have done everything in public. If you want to know anything about me, all you have to do is ask anybody who has heard me teach. 
Anna uh, is satisfied that um, that this is go- he that he needs to send him on now to Caiaphas. So he releases Jesus, and they take him to Caiaphas. Now we don't. John does not give us in his gospel the details of what happens in that meeting. But the other gospel writers tell us that their question to Jesus was really one thing. Are you the son of God? Are you the son of God? Jesus has been reluctant to claim that title. Jesus has said on many occasions, do not tell people who I am because my hour has not yet come. But now Jesus' hour has come. And so Jesus says very freely, very willingly, yes, I am the Son of God. Now for the Jews, that's all they need. Jesus has just blasphemed against God. That's all they need to execute him. But they do not have the legal right to do so. So they immediately take Jesus to Pilate, who represents the Roman government. When they get to Pilate, Pilate says, what charge do you bring? Now, you have to read between the lines here, but what's happening here is something that was very unexpected. The Jewish leaders had surely gone to Pilate to secure the cohort of soldiers. They couldn't have had 200 soldiers from Rome without Pilate's approval, right? So they assumed that Pilate would be completely in cahoots with them. He would follow along with this kangaroo court and get Jesus railroaded through to execution. But Pilate is playing a different game. You see, the truth is Pilate hated the Jews, and he wanted to get under their skin. And so he asked them, what is your charge? Now, why does he ask that question? He knows why they're there. He knows that their charge is blasphemy. And Rome has said, we don't care about blasphemy. We don't want to get involved in religious matters. We will not execute a man because of blasphemy. That is a religious thing. And so in asking the question, Pilate puts the Jewish leaders in a very difficult place. If they say what their charge is, they're going to, he's going to be dismissed. So what they say is this. They say, Pilate, you know we wouldn't have brought him here if he weren't guilty. You know we wouldn't brought him here if he had not done something very serious. So they, they put that before him. Then Pilate turns to Jesus and said, are you the king of the Jews? You see, now it becomes clear that Pilate has been in cahoots with him a bit. He already knows ultimately where this is going to lead. And he jumps straight to it and he says, Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says to him, who told you to ask me that? Why do you ask me that? Do you ask me on your own account or did someone else tell you? What's he getting at? This was not just, Jesus was not being evasive here. This was a very significant question because Jesus wanted to answer truthfully. And if if it was Pilate who was asking as a Roman, then the answer was no, I have no interest in your kingdom. I have no interest in an earthly kingdom at all. But if you're asking me on behalf of them, the Jewish leaders, then yes, in terms of what they're speaking of, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. Well, this clearly to Pilate indicates that there's nothing here to prosecute in terms of what the Romans care about. So Pilate determines to set him free. And, um, but he, he recognizes the, uh, the dilemma that he is in. Because on the one hand, if Pilate... Uh, executes Jesus, 
He is going to be in trouble with Rome because Rome does not want someone executed purely for religious reasons. But if he lets him go, then the Jewish people are going to be in uproar and he might have riots on his hands. So Pilate comes up with this idea that he thinks is brilliant. He remembers this very rare and almost never used statute that said that on the, at the time of the celebration of the Passover, one prisoner can be released. And there is one prisoner that he is quite confident the people will, uh, will not want to release, and that's Barabbas. Because Barabbas is a murderer. Barabbas is a really, really, really bad guy. And surely they would not choose Barabbas over Jesus. But Pilate has miscalculated. Pilate does not know that the Jewish leaders have already gotten to the Jewish people and told them that if this happens, you must choose Barabbas. And so the people cry out, give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Pilate is dumbstruck. I mean, he doesn't know what to do. And then, then he thinks of, uh, of a plan B. And his plan B is this. I'm going to take Jesus and I'm going to have him flogged to within an inch of his life. And surely, if I treat him thusly, I can bring him back out and the people will have pity on him when they see what happens to him. They'll have pity and they will say to release him. And so Pilate has him scourged. The scourging was the worst form of beating that the Romans could, ins- uh, could implement. Uh, a scourging happened when they took a whip that had lots of little uh, th- threads on the end, each one t- tied with a piece of bone or metal, so that when the whip hit the flesh, it literally ripped chunks of flesh out of the back. Many men died under scourgings. Jesus was scourged. Pilate thought, surely when they see this bloody man ripped to shreds, they will have pity and they will ask me to release him. But again, the people, without mercy, cry out, crucify him, crucify him. At this, Pilate truly does not know what to do. But he just cannot bring himself to do what is wrong in the eyes of Rome. So he says to them, if you want to crucify him, then you take him and crucify him. But then the Sanhedrin say this to him. They say, Pilate, you know we have no power to execute this man. They are sending a very clear signal to to Pilate. Only you can do what we have agreed is going to happen here. And we're reminding you what you must do. So Pilate goes back in. Oh, and by the way, they throw out in this whole conversation here, they throw out to Pilate, he is claimed to be the son of God. He's claimed to be the son of God. I think they're thinking, surely he will see the blasphemy in those words. What actually happens is not what they expect. Pilate becomes even more afraid, John says. What does he mean there? What does he mean? Because here's what happens. Out of his fear, Pilate is even more determined to set Jesus free. Here's what's happening. The night before, Pilate's wife had sent him a little note. And in the note, she said, I have had a terrible dream about this man. He is innocent, have nothing to do with him. And now he hears this man claims to be the son of God. Now, Pilate was a pagan, but can I just remind you that pagans were very superstitious when it came to spiritual things? 
They believed in spiritual things. And, and so he's thinking, my wife has had a dream. This man claims to be the son of God. So he goes back in and he questions Jesus once again. And he says, where are you from? Where are you from? Because if Jesus says, I'm from Galilee, then Pilate doesn't have an issue because there's no gods from Galilee, right? But if Jesus says, I have come from heaven, then Pilate is in big trouble. And so he goes in, he says, where have you come from? And Jesus doesn't say a word. Jesus remains completely silent and it drives Pilate up the wall. Pilate says to him with anger and frustration, do you understand who's asking you this question? I have the power to crucify you and I have the power to let you go. Answer the question. Jesus says to him very calmly, you have no power whatsoever. The only power you have is the power that my Father in heaven has given you. Now Pilate's really afraid. Now he's really afraid. And he searches desperately for a way to release the people. He goes back in and says again, if you want him, take him. But I don't want to have anything to do with this. And then the Jewish leaders pull out the big guns. And they say, in the hearing of all the people that are gathered, if you are a friend of this man who claims to be a king, then you are no friend to Caesar. You are no friend to Caesar. And now they've got Pilate around the throat. Because the one person on the face of the earth that Pilate will not anger is Caesar. The one person that no one can question his loyalty to is Caesar. And so finally, the consummate politician, Pilate, turns his back, gives a blind eye to justice, and releases Jesus to be crucified. Now, this is like the telling of a great drama. I mean, John is clearly giving us all kinds of details to help us to see all that is at stake in this critical event. I want to just walk through this very quickly and help you to see the players in the drama. First of all, there are the schemers. The schemers. These would be the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin. They have actually been scheming since right after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, all of the people began to to talk about it. People began to praise Jesus. They knew they were in big trouble. If he becomes the leader, then we're going to lose power. And if we lose power, Rome is going to be angry, and Rome will probably come down here and crush the whole nation. And so Caiaphas actually said back in John 11, it's better for one man to die for all than for the whole nation to perish. What irony. What irony in that statement. It's better for one man to die for all than for the whole nation to perish. Now, the truth is, Caiaphas had no idea what he was saying was absolutely right, but not for the reasons that he thought. He thought they were preserving their political uh, identity, reserving their political power, Jesus would give his life for the sins of the whole world. But it is here in the schemers uh, that we see man working the machine to try to get their agenda done. They have schemed with Pilate to get the cohort. 
They've schemed against Pilate to put him in his place to make sure that they get what they want. Uh, now they know, they know exactly what must be done and they'll do whatever it takes to get it done. These are the schemers. There are the fearful, the disciples. I mean, just imagine what it must have been like for the disciples as they saw Jesus give himself up willingly, as they saw him scourged, as they saw him tried before Pilate, as they heard the sentence passed. The disciples must have been gripped with fear and terror about their future as well. Uh, There's the disillusioned. There probably were many who were disillusioned in this picture, but there are two that we see walking out of their disillusionment, and that's Judas and Peter. Uh, Judas betrayed Jesus ultimately, I believe, because he he had become disillusioned with who Jesus was. He had followed him thinking that Jesus would lead a revolution and set up a kingdom of power on earth. And when Jesus began to speak of suffering and death and sacrifice, Judas quickly became disillusioned and turned against him. Even Peter, we acknowledged a few weeks ago in that message on Judas and Peter that they weren't nearly as different as we often think. I believe Peter, what was behind Peter's denials were his own disillusionment. It wasn't fear. Peter was no coward. There's a moment in this very story where Peter draws a sword against 200 Roman soldiers. That's not the actions of a coward. I believe what happened with Peter is that his heart was crushed when Jesus said, put down your sword, put down your sword, and then willingly gave him up without a word, gave himself up without a word. I believe Peter was confused. I believe he was disillusioned. I believe he was lost. Uh, There are the powerful. Well, there's the politician. The politician in the story is Pilate. Pilate was at his core. You can see it in the story, but you can also see it in history. Pilate was a weak man. He had come from Spain. He had married into royalty. He had disappointed Rome on a number of occasions. He had become the the typical, just put his finger to the wind and see where it's blowing and go there. You see him being blown back and forth. He, He wants to please Rome. He wants to please people. He wants to preserve himself. Pilate is the consummate politician. And then you see the powerful represented by the Roman soldiers the, Rome, the soldiers stood for the, the very power of Rome itself. In these soldiers, we see their strength, and we see, we see their sarcasm being expressed in, uh, in, in statements of great um, uh, sarcasm toward Jesus. I mean, they are literally mocking the Son of God. I mean, when you read this part of the story, knowing who he is, it's hard to read. As they take the crown of thorns, he says, okay, you say you're a king, we're going to treat you like a king. And they place on his head a crown of thorns. And then they put around him a a purple robe representing royalty. And then they give him the mock salutes. Hail, king of the Jews. They spit on him. And they slap him in his face. And then, standing in all their power, They beat him mercilessly until he's almost dead. I was talking to our friend, Nathan Hudson. He came back from Iraq this week. Nathan is the medic that we left in Iraq when we went over a few weeks ago. 
And as I was talking to him, he said, you know, I've never seen evil personified. And I saw the effect of evil in a way that no man should ever have to see it. He said, but here's the thing. As I looked into the face of that evil, I realized this is precisely why Jesus had to die. Jesus came to give his life to destroy that evil. As Jesus stood there and listened to their mocking words, as he heard their sarcasm, as as he heard them spit on it, as they jokingly proclaimed him king, knowing that he was the king of a kingdom that could destroy Rome in a moment, Jesus said nothing. Jesus said nothing. The powerful. And then there's the mob. The mob, how fickle the mob. One week earlier, the mob was crying out and waving palm leaves, worshiping Jesus, uh, who they said, Hosanna, Hosanna to the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. But now they're shouting, crucify him, crucify him. They had been whipped into a frenzy by the Jewish leaders Forgetting all that Jesus has done, all that he has said, they are now swept up into the the emotion of the mob. No man thinking for himself, but every man lining up like a pawn to play his role, manipulated by those around them. That's the mob. Now, these are all the players except for Jesus. And I want you to see here how Jesus stands in stark contrast to all these other players in the story. While all of these are manipulating and scheming and fearful and disillusioned uh, and manipulated, Jesus stands in stark contrast. I want to draw out for you all of the little details that John provides to help us to see his one great truth. His one great truth. Everything that I'm going to tell you leads to this one great truth. The first thing is this. The choice of the place to be arrested. I want you to see that Paul, John makes very, very clear that we understand that Jesus chose the place where he was to be arrested. Jesus didn't just wait around in Jerusalem until they came to get him. Jesus went to a specific place a place that they had visited often, and he chose that place to be the place where he was arrested. Jesus wanted to be arrested in a garden, in a garden. I am convinced that the reason Jesus wanted to be arrested in a garden is because it was in a garden in Genesis 3 that sin entered the world. It was in a garden where sin launched this campaign to come against God's creation and to bring destruction in God's good world. And it would be in a garden that Jesus launched his final campaign to bring a death blow to sin. Jesus chose the garden. Jesus resolved to endure the agony. Jesus does nothing to help himself. He does not hesitate to acknowledge the truth when he's asked. Jesus even takes the initiative to go out to his enemies to give himself up. This is probably my favorite part of the story. When, they, when the soldiers first come to get Jesus, Jesus actually meets them at the edge of the garden and he says to them, what are you here for? 
what are you here for? And they respond, Jesus of Nazareth. And in that moment, Jesus speaks these words. He says to them, I am he. And John tells us that immediately the entire cohort of 200 soldiers, the Sanhedrin and Judas, all fall flat on their face. I want you to read that today when you go home. And I want you to hear that when Jesus speaks the words, I am he, every one of them falls flat on their face. They didn't understand, and Jesus was now helping them to see that the one to whom you speak is the same one who named himself I am in the burning bush to Moses, the same one who parted the Red Sea, and the same one who could destroy you in a moment right now. But Jesus chose not to exercise that power. He chose not to exercise that power. Jesus gave himself up. Of course, Peter wouldn't let that happen. Peter immediately pulls out the sword and slices off the ear of one of the soldiers. Now, it's interesting that it's Dr. Luke who tells us that Jesus healed him, that Jesus took the ear and put it back on him and healed him. And then he turned to Peter. This is much more important. And he said to Peter, put away your sword. Matthew tells us that in that moment, Jesus said to Peter, do you not understand that if I ask my father... He would send 12 legions of angels to come and protect me. But again, Jesus would not ask. And the Father did not send 12 angels, 12 legions of angels to protect him. Jesus gave himself up willingly. Jesus took that same resolve into the trial, never defending himself, speaking only when he absolutely had to, and giving himself up freely. There's a point at which Pilate says what I said earlier. He reminds Jesus, do you not know that I have the power to take your life or to release you? Jesus says to him very calmly, you have no power whatsoever. No power whatsoever. And then there's this one final little tidbit. John tells us that the precise moment that Pilate announced his sentence of crucifixion over Jesus, he tells us the moment when that happens. He says it was at the sixth hour on the eve of Passover. Do you know what happens in Jewish tradition at the sixth hour on the eve of Passover? That is the moment that the priests begin to slaughter the lambs to pay for the sins of the people. It was at that precise moment that Jesus gave himself up and they announced his sentence, that he would be slain on a cross. Now, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that all of these details about the way Jesus uh, lives in this story, all of these details are meant to proclaim one great truth, and that is that Jesus is in complete control. Jesus is in complete control. I want you to understand that no one took his life. Jesus was not outwitted by the Jews. He was not overpowered by the Romans. He was not at the mercy of the mob. Jesus gave himself up willingly. He had actually told his disciples he would do this earlier in the gospel. In John 10, 17, Jesus said, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life. No one takes it from me, 
but I lay it down on my own accord. There are so many players here, so many agendas, so many moving parts, but I want you to see that throughout the entire scene, Jesus is in complete control. Is there anybody here today that needs to know that? That Jesus is in complete control? Can we just say that together? Jesus is in complete control. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing, and he did it willingly. I mean, at the very moment when things look most out of control, Jesus was firmly in control. The Jews thought they were in control. Pilate was terrified that he was going to lose control. The people longed for uh, just a measure of control, so much so that they sold their souls to the leaders to do whatever they ask. At the very moment when it seemed that evil would overcome good, Jesus turned the whole thing on its head and death gave a death, a dealt the death blow towards sin and crushed it in that moment. Jesus was in control. I was, as I was just meditating on this this morning, the words of that great old hymn just came back to my memory. Mighty fortress is our God. It says, and though this world with devil's fill should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. One little word shall fell him. Beloved, you may have come here this morning feeling like your world is spinning out of control. You may feel like the world itself is spinning out of control these days. Maybe it's at, it, maybe it's at your workplace People are making decisions that will affect you directly over which you have no control. People may be coming against you. You may have issues in your family where you feel like your family is out of control. For goodness sake, this election cycle, right? I mean, when you think about what's going on around us in our nation... I mean, can't you see all the same players that I talked about earlier in, in today's situation? The, the schemers, the fearful, the disillusioned, the powerful, the mobs. I don't know about you, but beloved, I need to know today that Jesus is in control. Amen. It may appear your world is spinning out of control. But beloved, I want you to know today that there is a rock on which we can stand. There is a rock on which we can stand. And his name is Jesus. Jesus.